Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good day, good friends. Good to see you. And welcome to another edition of the Bill Press Pod on one of my favorite topics, religion and politics. (laughs) You know, that's something we've been struggling with since the days of the pilgrims, and we still can't get it right. In the name of Jesus, in just the last couple of weeks, the Southern Baptist Convention tossed out all women pastors, said only men can officiate in the Southern Baptist Convention. In the name of Jesus, so-called Christians are banning books from school libraries. In the name of Jesus, evangelical Christians have endorsed for president a man who's been indicted for making hush payments to a porn star and already found liable for committing sexual assault. And in the name of Jesus, followers of white Christian nationalism threatened to undermine our very democracy. As head of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the Reverend Barry Lynn fought this brand of extreme right-wing Christianity for decades And he tells us all about it in a rollicking new memoir, Paid to Piss People Off. Barry Lynn, my good friend, good to reconnect with you. It's been a long time, Barry. It has indeed, but we're getting older and wiser. (laughs) Both you and I are, at least, anyhow. But look, so I got this little beef with you, uh, Barry. Paid to piss people off? I thought that was my job. (laughs) You know, there's luckily there are a couple of us who managed to do that. But this title, you know, my original title for this trilogy was uh, Fellowship of the Rings. Then somebody said, wait a minute, somebody else wrote that book. But, but a high school student came up to me at a party once and said, Mr. Lynn, I want to do what you do when I get out of school. I said, Connor, what it, what is it you think I do? He said, I think you get paid to piss people off, thus providing a yes. wonderful title for this trilogy. Right. And a great life's work for you and for me, I, I, I might add. So I really want to get into the three-part memoir with you, but let's start with some things that are in the news. I know you and I have been talking about, thinking about. So here's the Southern Baptist Convention. I might say, remind everybody, this is 2023, which ousted the Saddleback Church, Rick Warren, longtime uh, Baptist preacher, and ousted all women leaders, saying only men can be as accepted as any kind of pastor or elder as qual- qualified by Scripture. Barry, what's going on? Well, the good news is in America, you can think what you want. And uh, the perhaps unsavory news is that the Southern Baptist Convention does have the right under the law of the country to make restrictions that say you can't have women you yeah. can find they can do that and they absolutely can do that but now the bigger problem is what else can they do with this so-called ministerial exception to the civil rights laws back in 
Mm-hmm. When I was at Americans United for Separation of Church and State back in 2012, there was a case that went to the Supreme Court over the question of whether a woman who had been fired for having narcolepsy and went to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to get some relief could justifiably be excluded from the civil rights action Mm -hmm. because she was a minister. She had no duties as a minister. She she taught secular subjects. And at the very end of the oral argument, uh, Justice Scalia, in one of the few times that he ever said anything particularly bright, he he said, wait a minute, shouldn't we just reserve this exception for people who have some substantial religious duty, not just anybody they call a minister? But he and then literally every other member of the court said, nah, we're not going to do that. You call a person a minister, they are one, and they can't use the courts to seek. Mm any kind of justice. So this ministerial exemption, whether you like it or not, has now swallowed up virtually everyone employed by a church or a church school. They can't get into the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which means they can't get into federal court. Well, what about this qualified by scripture? I mean, really? Scripture says women are second. We know there are certain passages. You and I know that. But, But overall, Women are second-class citizens? Well, yes. I mean, you can you can find that in Scripture. And I mean, I think we've both heard many, many yeah, uh, right. uh, so-called pastors who take that position. But it's also what they will do, they will point to the Gospels and they'll say, look, my, there's not even a... The, the apostles, there's not even a woman apostle. There are in some of the books that didn't make it into the mm-hmm. canon of the New Testament. but in the four biggies, women don't come out very well. They don't come out, and they form that forms the basis for this conclusion for the Southern Baptist Convention that they're not appropriately seen as pastors, even in 2024. I'm sure you have talked to some Baptist women. Why do they stay in the Baptist Convention? It's a very good question, and a lot of people are not, and a lot of women are going to other Baptist conventions, like the American Baptist Convention, which is much more liberal than the Southern Baptist Convention. And, um, you know, Rick Warren kind of got into the middle of this, and for those of us who follow him a little more closely, uh, he's not exactly a progressive person. No, uh, no, no. I mean, this guy is very, very conservative. You may remember, some of your listeners may remember w- when he sponsored a debate between Barack Obama and John McCain, and he was using in his questioning the, these phrases that would only be recognizable to conservative Christians, much in the same way that, that George W. Bush used to throw out these uh, mm. phrases power, wonder, working power, which means a lot to evangelical conservative Christians, but is meaningless to most people. Yeah. So I thought of you, Barry, uh, recently with the passing of Pat Robertson. I mean, you and I both uh, had some interaction with him. You a lot more than than I did. Um, how, how do you rate his influence on the, uh, on the evangelical movement, if you will? Yeah, I think he had an enormous influence, and I think almost all of it was negative. Here was a man who had, I must say, some um, some real talents. 
Somebody the other night asked me, uh, can I say anything good about him? And I can. There are two things. Once I heard him do a sermon. <laughs> of a, yeah, two. But, you know, some people don't have enough. One, he gave a sermon on poverty in the Philippines. And it was as harsh, as tear-jerking a sermon as I've heard anyone give. He talked about the children huh. living huh. on garbage dumps in the Philippines. Now, you know, it was a good he was a good sermonizer mm-hmm. sometimes. And then the second thing was after that debate that was held some years ago between Ken Ham, the guy who set up the, the Creationism Museum, and uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, Pat Robertson the next day, in reflecting on the previous night's uh, debate, said that he was horrified that Ken Ham actually said that the Earth was only six thousand years old and he Mm. said this makes a mockery of christianity it makes it look stupid Hmm. which was true Hmm. but um because you wouldn't even hear jerry falwell say that i mean i don't know how many times they debated jerry falwell about evolution but he had no no sense of any scientific value to it at all i remember being on Fox News one night, there had been a major development. Falwell and a lot of these guys constantly talked about the fossil record having gaps in it. And uh, there was a major gap filled that very morning. It was on the front page of the New York Times. And I was there literally with Falwell in the green room. And uh, I said, Jerry, did have you seen this evidence of it? And he took the newspaper He threw it down on the table in front of him, and he said, Barry, you know, I don't look at that stuff. He doesn't (laughs) look at facts. You know, I mean, talk about people who are rooted in ignorance. That is and was Jerry Falwell. Pat Robertson, not so much. And, you know, Pat Robertson hired me. I'm the only person in the history of the earth that once got for about a year, got a paycheck from both the ACLU and from <laughs> Pat Robertson, because he set up this secular uh, n- news network, news talk radio. And um, it was all conservatives. And then he wanted one show that would have a conservative and a progressive. And he hired a guy named Pat Corton, who used to be on WTOP in Washington. He was a, a good journalist and a c- conservative, but not a nut. And then he, they, they approached me and I said, sure, I'll do that. And once and only once was I able to have uh, both the head of the ACLU and the he- and Pat Robertson on the same show, one of those PBS firing lines with William F. Buckley. And I put my arms around both of them and there's a picture of it, but oh, I can't God. find the picture. So, <laughs> But people should know, I only tell the truth and therefore I'm telling the truth about that. Do you, you mentioned both Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. Um, which of them do you think uh, is more responsible or should get more credit for the building of today's evangelical movement? I mean, through the Christian coalition and all the rest? Yeah, I do think because of the Christian coalition and the other offshoot organizations that Pat Robertson built, that he is more responsible than Jerry Falwell for what Hmm. we see in the evangelical Christian movement today. He built networks. They weren't always successful. There were ups and downs. I talk a lot about that in the book, some of his leaner years. And he wasn't always successful. In fact, uh, even on that secular radio network, eventually... 
he just couldn't make a go of it. And uh, so I, I, I do remember Courtney and I were on Larry King live and uh, he one night and Larry goes at the end, uh, you guys are going to be the next big thing in radio. <laughs> one week, one week later, <laughs> we were fired. So <laughs> Larry was great, but wasn't always correct. How do you rate the influence or power of the evangelical evangelicals today and uh, uh, in American politics, particularly? I think there it's still very, very strong, and I think that when people look at the run of potential Republican nominees for the presidency in, in 2024, um, they are right to think that even though Donald Trump has been around the block with many, many people, many stupid things, he's still going to get the bulk of the evangelical vote. And I think Democrats ought to be happy about that, because I hope that the Democratic Party is confronted with another presidential candidacy by Donald Trump, because the other guys, and you know many of these people better than I do, they're just as conservative, just as irrational, and just as foolish as Donald Trump, but they're better at conning people. They're better at messaging. And I would say, if you looked at the CNN, people looked at that CNN Anderson Cooper uh, interview of Chris Christie a few weeks ago, if you didn't come across, if you didn't know anything about Chris Christie, you'd never encountered him, you didn't know what a weird person he was, you might say, this guy sounds like a traditional Republican, and he even gets things done with Democrats. Yeah. Let's go for him. I think Chris Christie, first of all, I don't think he's going to get the nomination, but if he did, he'd be a formidable opponent for anybody on the Democratic ticket. But it still is a mystery, which I've never figured out, that, look, let's just face it, everybody knows Donald Trump, um, morality and Donald Trump, right, character and Donald <laughs> Trump, not in the same mm -hmm. sentence. He's been indicted for making hush payments to a porn star, and the evangelicals choose him as their candidate. I mean, Barry, you and I remember <laughs> what they had to say about Bill Clinton. What? Oh, absolutely. Well, consistency, as a one right-winger once told me, is not something we members of Congress have to abide by. So you can say one thing, attack somebody, and then when your friend does literally the same thing, you can, you can come up yeah. with a justification. You can come up with an excuse. And I think evangelicals are really good at that. They say, well, look, I mean, yes, he, he fooled around with women and uh, he says some s silly things, but he's stopping abortion. He's protecting our Second Amendment rights. And as a consequence, I'm going to overlook his sins because after all, we're all sinners. We've all heard that. We've yeah. all heard it. Right. Yeah. I, but right. it is a, it's a mystery, but not as mysterious as we might think, because the more that you talk to people about why they can overlook all this, the more you find that there are an infinite number of excuses for people to overlook all of the bad behavior, the sins, you might say, of Donald J. Trump. And among these evangelicals, I find very troubling, There's there are, there are more and more instances of anti-Semitism. Maybe it's not direct, right, you know, but yep. all the all the blaming everything on George Soros. I mean, all they're saying is, you know, blame the Jews, blame the Jews. 
Yeah, I mean, I I do remember once asking Jerry Falwell. It it might have been on Crossfire. I don't remember um, whether he had just done a press conference with a rabbi. Uh, very, very uh, ultra-conservative rabbi. And I asked Falwell if uh, the rabbi would be going to heaven. And Falwell <laughs> would not answer the question. And indeed, he once got an enormous amount of trouble when visiting Israel, when he seemed obliquely to suggest that there might be Jews who would go to heaven. And he had to apologize and issue a press release uh, denying that Jews would go to heaven. So, yeah, it's a limited love button, mm-hmm. and you ain't getting yeah. into heaven in Jerry's yeah. book unless you're a Christian. Uh, and we have out there now this theory, some call it openly that, others just hide behind it, called Christian nationalism. Uh, yep. How real is that, uh, and how how much of a threat is it, do you believe? I think it's an enormous threat because it's based on the idea that God has a specific and privileged position for the United States in the realm of religion, that you can, you should work. At its extremes, it used to be called Christian Reconstructionism. Mm. And this was the idea that you would take all of the teachings of the Bible, all the prohibitions in the Bible, and turn them one way or another into the laws of the United States so that you would base the American system not on the Constitution per se, but on the words of Scripture. So that you took the Ten Commandments literally, but again, they you can't take everything too literally because on something like thou shalt not kill, what uh, they mean, they say, this is not biblically true, uh, well, that, that means you shouldn't murder. It has nothing to do with the death penalty. And then you say, well, wait a minute, uh, Jesus, about to stone a prostitute to death, and he said, uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then they go, yeah, yeah, but afterwards he, he said to the prostitute, go and sin no more. They've got answers, as you and I both know, Bill, for everything. Oh, yeah. You cannot be, I have to tell people this all the time, you cannot beat Christian nationalists or Christian evangelical conservatives by quoting the Bible to them because they're always going to find a reason why your quote is insufficient, and their quote, which they will be happy to provide you, is even better. Right. But these are people who do preach, I mean, despite all the evidence, they, they, they preach that the United States is a Christian nation founded by Christian founding fathers, right? Correct. Which is all bullshit. And- of course it is. Um, it, it's nonsense. And, uh, you know, even the people that they sometimes consider founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson wasn't, he didn't believe in miracles. And in fact, there is a version of the Bible referred to now as the Jefferson Bible, where he takes out all of the miracle stories and just let in the the good, what he considered the good uh, teachings of the Gospels. No, no miracles necessary. Mm-hmm. But people forget that. And there are whole there are whole organizations built to train not only lawyers, but also young people 
in the rubric of the rhetoric of and the principles of Christian nationalism. They have weekly uh, services. I've I've listened to a couple. Um, they have a training session where you'll love this. One of the training sessions you go to learn about Christ and to practice marksmanship. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I know it sounds weird. Right. It's as, it's as weird as a church in Western Pennsylvania that not uh, just a few years ago decided to hold a service that did two things. You could renew your marriage vows and they would bless your semi-automatic weapons like AK-47s. When asked, what's the biblical basis for that? They said, well, wait, it's in the book of Revelation, the rod of iron. What could a rod of iron be except a gun? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. They got answers, Bill, for everything. Right. And um, one of the things that you talk about in the book, again, which we get to in a minute here, is about one of the famous things Christians do, if there's something they don't like, then we're going to ban it, right? You know, we'll ban oh, yeah. alcohol, we'll ban tobacco, whatever. Uh, well, the latest ban for craze is banning books, right? And these are, yep. again, so-called Christian, maybe just one parent in an entire school district can say, oh, I don't like that book because it doesn't reflect Christian nationalism or the extreme literalism of the Bible or whatever. Uh, a trouble, a troubling trend. Uh, it's uh, been around for a long time. It's changing a little bit now because the targets are no longer uh, necessarily. I think in the latest list, I couldn't find any that were uh, challenged. You know, a lot of these challenges don't result in any removal of any books, but they used to go after the occult and they used yeah, to go oh, after yeah. teaching methods. I mean, I somebody right. sent me a puppet once. It's a teal colored dragon named Pumsy. <laughs> and Pumsy was supposed to lure children into Hinduism and the occult because he was being used in a reading series for like, young like, people. Like Tinky Winky, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like Tinky Winky. But I mean, Tinky Winky, well, Tinky Winky make you gay too. I don't know if Pumsy was accused of being gay. But but that that's dropped out because now the targets are sexuality and not just so-called pornography, but also um, anything that talks about the LGBTQ plus community and, uh, of course, critical race studies. Right. I had an opportunity to vote in my first uh, local election up here in Massachusetts where we moved six months ago. And um, one of the people running for the school board, I said, uh, well, what are you trying to do? And she said, well, I'm trying to get elected so that we can cut the the budget for the schools i said cut the budget for the schools i mean the school the children there are they're, they're the hope for the future and she said well not when they're being taught <laughs> critical race theory i said critical race theory i said i didn't know that was even being taught in the schools up here but i'm a fan of it and she just about turned whiter <laughs> than she was and said oh no it's very dangerous plus she said they had somebody from the Anti-Defamation League come into the high schools and talk to the students. The Jewish connection, mm -hmm. again. Yeah, there you go. Again. I mean, they are. It, right. So, but luckily, she she lost, and I was really happy to vote against her. You have wrapped it all up uh, in a very uh, 
very fun, rollicking memoir, three-part called Paid to Piss People Off. Let's talk a little bit about that, Barry. After a quick break, take a quick break here on the on the Bill Press Spot, then we'll be right back. And today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong they're the backbone of the labor industry, labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines. And in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the labor's union supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back on today's podcast with a good friend, Reverend Barry Lynn, longtime head of the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, which I am a proud member of in, uh, in uh, due disclosure. Uh, and Barry, I was thinking, you know, reading your memoir, John Lewis said famously, you know, go out and get into trouble, get into good trouble. You've gotten into a lot of good trouble. Uh, and, and you kind of do it in three stages, right? Pete. One yep. is number one is peace. Uh, that's when you were working uh, really, particularly United Church of Christ um, against the Vietnam War, and then right. porn <laughs> with yeah. your time at the ACLU, challenging uh, Ed Meese and his uh, war on porn, and then prayer. Your time at America's United. So it's peace, porn, and prayer. Let's go to the anti-war years. They were. Um, very lively, and and amnesty was a big issue, right? Yeah, amnesty was an incredible, maybe the big issue. Right. I so. mean, it, it was because once the wars was winding down, it became clear, particularly to the Democratic Party, that they had they had better find somebody who would at least speak the language of doing something to repair the damage done uh, when. People resisted a war that clearly was a loser from the beginning, but no one wanted to admit that. And um, so there were a couple of efforts when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. Uh, he was under a lot of pressure, mainly from uh, Senator, the late Senator Phil Hart's uh, wife, Jane, who was also a very active anti-war advocate, who asked uh, Ford on the phone when he said, as most people do, is there anything I can do for you? And she <laughs> said, yeah, you could grant a full amnesty for all those who resisted the war. Mm. That became a huge news story, and I got a call. Can you come back? I was somewhere else. You can come back to Washington, Jane, once you're here. So we had a big press conference. At the time, it was the largest 
press conference I had ever participated in. I mean, I, I couldn't count the number of cameras. It got no publicity. Gerald Ford was horrified that this had come out, that he had said this. And, oh. of course, he created this goofy kind of Rube Goldberg-esque thing that uh, was supposed you were supposed to apply. And then if they thought you were, I guess sad enough and you did a couple of years of alternative service uh, they would grant you a pardon it was a miserable and total failure but then when jimmy carter democrat said carter doesn't say something about a pardon or amnesty he won't get the nomination which was probably true and so we did orchestrate a thing at, at the democratic national convention that year where uh a person who had left the country named Fritz Efaw was brought to the mm. convention from England where he'd been in exile. And uh, he was nominated to be the vice president by two marvelous people. One was Louise Ransom, whose son had been killed on Mother's Day in 1967. And, um, and then by Ron Kovic, the author of Born on the Fourth of July, who um, was played by Tom Cruise in the movie version of Born on the Fourth of July. But he's gone on to be an extraordinary anti-war activist himself. And it was a wonderful moment. It wasn't quite as wonderful as depicted in the movie because a lot of the Democrats that literally walked out, they just they they walked out of the convention because they didn't they didn't like the uh, the images of uh, a man in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. and a mother whose son had been killed in Vietnam, nominating a uh, a war resistor. But he did it. It wasn't perfect. And then with the help of uh, of rare moment of creativity from Republicans and Democrats. Um, Ed Brooke, the first and only African-American senator from Massachusetts, a Republican, and Jim Aberesk, who was probably the most liberal senator ever, uh, pro-Palestinian and all of the two of them joined up to work on a way to clean up the military discharge system for uh, people of the Vietnam era and uh, and afterwards and before and it was uh, it was a good work i mean it was in some ways that was what led me to say wait a minute you can really you might be able to do this you might mm-hmm. even be able to get paid <laughs> to do this and uh, ramsey clark uh, the attorney general who fell out of favor with uh, the johnson administration introduced me once in new york and he said I want him to say a few words. I said a few words. He said, I believe this young man has signed on to the long haul for social justice. And I always remembered that. And I always thought, man, I can't, I can't go into academia. I can't go to a law firm because that would be offending (laughs) Ramsey Clark's admonition and promise about what I would become. So that led you to another organization that I'm uh, proud to be a member of, the ACLU, and the whole battle against, I'd forgotten all about, Ed Meese and the Porn Commission and the the zealotry at the time, right? Um, Basically, you were there fighting, defending the First Amendment. Absolutely. And I was defending the First Amendment about everything. I mean, I remember, um, I mean, the Ed Meese thing, and there are lots of kind of funny stories. I, my, my wife was 
reading an earlier draft of this and laughing. And she's, she said, I forgot all this stuff. And I said, well, one of the reasons I write, wrote the book was so I wouldn't forget it. But there were funny things. I'll just give you one example. Toward the end of the commission, they were roaming around the country, having hearings in various places. They had a hearing in Houston, Texas. This hearing was uh, to include a field trip on a bus uh, to three adult bookstores in the city of Houston. And these were really, really <laughs> scuzzy places. I mean, one of, but the third one was the scuzziest. And um, I ended up in a, a buddy booth. Many of your listeners may not remember those, but that this was before there were videotapes and DVDs and you could get porn streaming. You, you had to go to these places and buy tokens and put the token in and then you would be able to watch two minutes of a little eight millimeter loop. So I'm in this buddy booth with Henry Hudson, now regrettably a federal judge, but he had been the head of the commission and a wonderful woman named Ellen Levine, who was on the commission and who was the editor of Women's Day magazine. So we're stand, the three of us are standing there. <laughs> Henry puts the token in. <laughs> the film starts. It's two gay men wearing green monster masks having sex. And Henry Hudson looks at me and he goes, when you testified to the commission, Barry, you said all of these images have meaning. What's the meaning of this? I looked at him. I said, uh, try it. You might like it. <laughs> and Alan was already souring on it. Three of the four women refused to even agree to the conclusions of the commission. But she just could not <laughs> could not keep a straight face with that line. And I'll tell you, that was the stuff. And there are serious issues, and I, I talk about them in the book, of things that might be done to help genuine victims of pornography that is people that are forced to make mm -hmm. pornographic material and there are things that could be done unfortunately this commission was so steeped in its own moral hypocrisy that it uh, it it literally couldn't take anything seriously the the things that the strangest thing they did not in, in a buddy booth. I came in one afternoon, I was a few minutes late, and they were having a debate. Think about this. It's coming back. Is Michelangelo's Statue of David pornographic? And of course, recently in Florida, a woman was fired from a charter school for showing, I think, her sixth or seventh grade class a photograph of David, the statue. It is naked. You can see a wee-wee. They decided it wasn't pornographic, though, but in Florida, apparently it is. Mm. Uh, then we get <laughs> so many stories there. Great stories, by the way, all the way through. And then we get to your time, 25 years uh, at Americans United. Um, I, I, you know, so many of the issues that you um, fought successfully, prayer in schools, um, for gay marriage, women's rights, and all of those, um, Barry, they're back, right? Back in front of this Supreme Court. Are you worried about where the Supreme Court could be taking us on those issues? Yeah, I am worried about it. I'm worried about where this Supreme Court's taking us on a whole lot of, of issues, but certainly this among them. They've pretty much gone and done away with the idea that you can't fund private 
religious schools. Yeah, I mean, right. I did one or two more nails to go in that. I think the only solution is an expansion of the size of the Supreme Court. And even five years ago, I would talk to progressives and they go, well, you know, we can't do that. And I go, why? Well, because then if the Republicans get in and we've added four, they'll add another five. And then let's worry about that when it happens, because now we've got to worry about the fact that we are overturning decades of precedent, not just about abortion rights, but about other things as well. And yes, there are occasionally, there might be a good decision about Alaskan natives or a good decision not too long ago about one piece of the Voting Rights Act. But the overall agenda of these characters is very clear. It is to do away with precedent. It is to lie to get on the court in the first place. I remember at Americans United, when there would be a, an opening for the Supreme Court, uh, two things would happen. Uh, Democrats on the Judiciary Committee would call and go, what questions should we ask? And then Bill O'Reilly, on then at, at Fox before his fall from grace, he would have me on and he would say, well, oh, Barry, the, the Democrats are asking these questions about religion. And I'd say, what what questions? And O'Reilly would say, well, they, they said, can you separate your religious beliefs from your duties as a Supreme Court justice? I said, yes. And they all say, yes, they could, even though mm-hmm. kind of that we have evidence that they don't. But he said, well, you, you, the Democrats should not ask those questions. You can't get, a, you know, O'Reilly, I think he's somewhere. I think I saw him on a, a 800 channels and cable now. But, but I mean, he would just, he, he, he was not, he was not a very learned person. I do remember attempting to go back to evolution for a second, trying to explain to him why evolution was so important. He didn't accept the evidence for evolution. And and he thought that uh, if you didn't have a planned universe, then the universe would be random. And I I said, yeah, randomness, that's an important scientific idea. And he said, well, that's evil. Evil? No, it's neutral. It's just it's just how things work. If random change, and then every species changes a little, and they don't all succeed. Some die out. That's what the system is. It was impossible. You know, our friend Pat Buchanan, you could talk to about some of these things. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, forget about it. Right. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned Pat Buchanan. Um, uh, generous with your time, but I want to ask you a couple other things before we let sure. you go. One, and there are two people, you, you mentioned a lot of people that did influence you. Um, and of course, people like Ramsey Clark, you mentioned, um, uh, Ron Kovic and others on the left, but there were some on the right. Uh, I want to ask you about two of them. Your, your take on William F. Buckley Jr., who had a big influence on your career and Pat Buchanan. Yeah. I mean, Bill Buckley was a hero of mine because he was a hero of my dad's when I was growing up and in high school, I went to see him at a, a big event at Lehigh university where he was debating Norman Thomas, the founder of the socialist party in the United States. And my dad loved Bill Buckley. And I had occasionally seen him on television. I liked my dad. I, I respected him. I went to it expecting that Bill Buckley would just decimate philosophically, Norman Thomas. Norman was in in very poor health at the time. 
when that whole debate was over, I remember sitting in this basketball stadium thinking, wait a minute, my whole life has changed because Bill Buckley said nothing that was remotely similar to the things that I was learning in church. He mm. seemed to think if you if you act your you do the right thing, you you pose, you you, you do the things you're supposed to do. You don't need anybody's help. You certainly don't need the government's help. And you can be a self-made person. And that just didn't seem right. There was no community. He never mentioned that word. And it literally changed my philosophy in two hours. I went from being a kind of a conservative. And then many, many years later, when I started doing a lot of his uh, uh, firing lines on PBS, I was in a small plane with him. And I, I decided to tell him the story of how I first met him. And I told the story I just mentioned. And I said, so, Bill, remember, in a very real sense, you created me. <laughs> it's your fault, right? It's your fault, yeah. <laughs> and, Pat, I mean, uh, I did a lot of um, – I spent a lot of hours for about a year and a half on Pat's uh, uh, radio show that he did, first for Mutual and I guess then for NBC – and I was there three hours a day for for a year and a half. And we had certain points of agreement. The, the biggest one was NAFTA. Uh, this was a bad trade deal with Mexico that is turning out to be pretty much as bad as everybody thought. And so there would be this weird scenario where uh, Ralph Nader and I and Pat would all be on the same side. And I remember there was a famous debate on CNN on Larry King's show between Al Gore and Ross Perot. Ross oh, Perot yeah. was against, yeah. against these things. And Pat walks in to the studio. He looks at me. He said, I think we just lost because <laughs> Ross Perot just didn't really do a very good job that night. And that was even before he started Russ Perot started talking about, I think it was his sister was allegedly abducted by flying saucers. So, yeah. But Pat, I, I think Pat is a very principled person. I hate uh, conservatives who have no principles, which is a lot of them. But I always thought Pat genuinely believed the things that he said. And he once asked me, he said, Barry, why is it you, you have never worked for a president? And I said to him, Pat, it's because I never met a presidential candidate moral enough to work for. And I said that with tongue in cheek, but there's a lot of truth to it. Because if you are living in a political world and you, you're working for a politician, you got to swallow a lot of stuff. I, I didn't get a job on MSNBC because when the vice president of NBC called me to, to do a, a back and forth with Oliver North, um, he says to me, uh, Barry, I got one question. It's a very important one. Would you defend the Clinton administration every night if we hire you for this job? And I said, no. And he said, well, I thought so, but you're not going to get the job. In terms of uh, presidents with uh, moral character, I mean, look, Pat worked for Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. So yes, <laughs> yes. again, uh, Barry Lynn, our guest today, paid to piss people off. It's a great memoir, very, very, lots of great stories in it, and lots of important battles that he's been fighting. And you and I have been fighting a lot of the same battles with him. Uh, it's in three parts, peace, porn, and prayer. 
published by uh, Blue Cedar Press. And we will have um, a link, Barry, uh, in the episode notes to today's podcast where our listeners uh, can get their copy of your memoir and enjoy it as much as I have. Uh, thank you for a lifetime of great <laughs> service, Barry. And uh, thanks for all the good times that we've had together. And thanks for your time today uh, on the Bill Press Pod. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. You're a real hero of mine. And that's a wrap with the Reverend Barry Lynn. Uh, again, uh, check out uh, the episode notes to today's podcast to get your own copy of Paid to Piss People Off at a discount. Uh, in fact, our big thanks to uh, Barry Lynn for joining us again and for all the great work that he's done trying to make some sense out of this uh, combination or connection between religion and politics. And thank you all for listening. Now, as always, we invite you back at the end of the week on Friday. Three top political reporters will join us for our Reporters Roundtable to um, take a look at what happened this week and try to make some sense of it all. Have a great week, folks. We'll see you Friday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, our Reporters Roundtable. Roundtable.